0: All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. We are in a series. We're in the fifth week of a series in the book of Leviticus. And if you have not been with us this summer as we've started this, you may be asking the question, what are you doing? Why? Why Leviticus? I was talking to someone at a wedding I was doing, and they said, the first week you guys did Leviticus, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, the Old Testament. Oh no, that book in the Old Testament, why? And, and if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, Congratulations. You know why someone would have that response to the book of Leviticus because there's parts of it that are really, really seemingly obsolete. They have nothing to do with the 2017 Christian. They have nothing to do with everyday life. Why in the world would we spend a summer wasting our time studying this book of the Bible when we could, there's plenty of other stuff that's so practical. You could walk out of here and study them and and like, and live that out, flesh that out in your marriage. And this book clearly has none of that. Or does it? Or does it? We are going to be in Le- uh, Leviticus 11 through 15 this morning, and uh, we've been studying through, if, uh, if you have your notes on the flip side, we've been kind of following the thematic role of how Leviticus is, is laid out. It's... it's laid out in a mirror, where you start off with the ritual uh, sacrifices, then the ritual feasts, and then you get down into the priests being ordained, and then on the lat- end of the book, there's the priest qualifications. Then you look and you see the, um, the ritual, uh, the ceremonial, pardon me, the ceremonial purity, and then at the end of the book, you have uh, the, ceremon- uh, the, the moral purity. And then it it all comes down to the Day of of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is what we're going to be, man, we're getting up to that point right now, but we've been kind of going back and forth throughout the book, recognizing the themes of the way that this book is laid out, Um, and as we're getting into this, we need to understand that this is a book that is given to a people in a certain period of time. Context is so key, because we need to know that these are ex-slaves, they just got out of Egypt. And God is telling these people, you are now a chosen people. You guys are going to be not, not only are you just a people group who who have a particular religion, you guys are going to be a nation. And in order to have a nation, you'd have to have property, you have to have some real estate, you have to have a government, and you have to have people. You've got the people, I'm going to give you the property, and I'm going to be your king. And as your king, I'm going to lay out for you my law. This is how we're going to roll. And we we, we could see that broken down in Scripture um, throughout the Old Testament into three sections. Judicial law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Judicial law is like basically, okay, so who gets executed? Like, what do you have to do? I mean, if someone does this, what constitutes capital punishment? Or if someone does something accidentally, how do we make a way to, to mitigate revenge? And how do we w- make a way to actually preserve life? And, and, and so like under God's rulership as the king, there's the judicial law. We see that in Exodus. We see the moral law um, take place, not only in Exodus with the 10 commandments, but we also see that in Leviticus 19 through 20, talking about how God's perspective uh, on our life, the way that we treat one another, the way that our, our outlook on sexuality, every, everything is like God has a perspective on that and the moral law, but what we're going to talk about today is probably one of the most difficult to apply, maybe just straight from the page, right in the middle, the ceremonial law. So we're going to look at the nature of that, um, nature of this, because what the ceremonial law does is it answers this question. How is someone like me, how is someone like me with all of my baggage, how is someone like me living in a broken world supposed to go and worship someone like him? I know my own issues, and I know know that there's things that I've done that I'm not even fully aware of. So how is someone like me supposed to worship someone like him? Because if I think about what I've done or the world that I live in, and I think about how holy God is, I know that the one place I should be is far away from him. And so why in the world should I actually have access to come before and worship, to bring sacrifice, to even have a relationship with him? Leviticus 11 through 15 fleshes that out. What we see in this passage is the reality that God has provided a way back so that people don't stay distant. Uh, a couple of weeks back, I was talking with a friend um, who was admitting himself to rehab. He had hidden uh, his addiction to alcohol um, from even his spouse and his family, and nobody knew how bad it was. They kinda knew things were sketchy, but they didn't realize the depths of it. And when I met with him and prayed with him before, he che- before he- getting in the car for him to go to rehab, I said, why? I, I, like, honestly, I think the last time I saw you was right around Easter. Where have you been, man? And he said, The more that I thought about my sin, the more I realized the last place on planet Earth I should be is in church because I feel like a hypocrite. Every single time I go in there and I know what I'm doing, I know what what, what my life is all about, I felt like the biggest hypocrite to sing songs or or to listen to sermons and then shake hands with people and walk out as if there's nothing going on, and I know there is. And so for me, I, I justified every Sunday morning, the best thing for me to do to not be a hypocrite is to be distant. And so for the past couple of months, that's where I've been. And I asked him, how's that working out for you? It's like, well, it, it didn't. I said, no, because that's not God's call on you. God's call is not for you to say, I am stuck in my sin, so I'm gonna stay distant, I'm gonna stay stuck in my sin, but rather, I know a God who actually has made provision for me to come back, and that is what we see in the chapters 11 through 15. Now, again, for anyone who's never read chapters 11 through 15, this is an awesome thing you could do today after church. It'll freak out your family. Um, If you invite some neighbors in, they'll say, okay, this is why I'm not a Christian. (laughs) Because there's things in this passage that are just, again, why? Why would God do this? Why would he want this? And so we're gonna try to get into a little bit of it, but I'm gonna just give you just a complete honest answer from the get-go. There are things in the ceremonial laws, I don't understand why God did it. I don't know why he did it. Maybe that's part of the point. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So basically, we have this common understanding that God's chosen people are at their basis, they're they're set apart, so they're already distinct from everyone else. But everyday life has a a, a habit of making people who are clean, chosen, unclean, defiling them. And, and, And so everyday life, something happens to actually remind them of the fact that the curse is there. And so what God does in chapters 11 through 15, through Moses, is to let them know some of the things that actually to defile them. Now again, th- these are things that are, seem really weird and obscure to us in 2017. He communicates that there's a distinction between clean and unclean animals. Okay, these animals you can eat. These, these land animals, sea animals, cr- air creatures, etc. And these are animals that you can't. And you know what God gives us an explanation of why? He doesn't, he doesn't give any reason why. He did, there's no, there's no, and so what scholars do is they like, they like, ah, oh, this is it, this is why. But they're guessing, we don't know for sure. And, and again, it's one of those things that just seems odd but we get to the end of chapter 11 and it says this in verse 46, these are the regulations after talking through and, and distinguishing all the clean and unclean. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living cre- thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten, okay? Have you ever been on a diet where you used to eat something, and now you cannot eat that thing that you are commonly, you're you're used to eating, right? And all of a sudden, that thing that you liked you now love, and you're just like, dear Lord, if I could have that. Someone told me, you know, what, what is the deal? I, I'm, I can't eat any carbs, and so what do I see? Right when I come to church, I get coffee, and there's carbs all over a table. I can't eat any of those, and now they look so good. Now, God's people, this is what they had to do. They couldn't just basically say, well, okay, bacon is awesome, but I'm just going to set it aside. But you know what? It's cool because God gives us cheat days and I'm going to factor in a cheat day. I'm going to have some pork. No, they were like, okay, we're called to distinguish and set up. And so what God's people had to do is say, it's not just that I don't think that this is the best thing for my cholesterol or this isn't the best thing for me to eat hygienically or it's not the best meat versus those animals over there that are clean. I just can't eat these because God says I can't eat these. And that means that I actually have to hate the idea of even eating them. Because if I do that like wishy-washy halfway, I'm gonna find a way to justify my way into eating everything that he tells me not to. Chapter 11 lays out that. And then chapter 11 also, the last half of it, talks through the fact that there's something else that makes us unclean. This one makes a little bit more sense, which is touching dead animals and any type of carcass. But he, and if you go through chapter 11 in and, and that section and you find out if you just, again, this is a fun Sunday afternoon activity. If you want to just circle in your Bible all the times it says carcass, You're going to, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to spoil it for you. There's 14. You're tripping over carcasses all over this because you see these people who had so many sacrifices, who were already um, agricultural people, people with cattle, people who are not only sacrificing, but they're raising them for food. There's animals everywhere. And you know what? Sometimes animals just by themselves die right on your front porch and you have to do something about it you got to remove that carcass. And when you move that carcass, guess what happens to you? You're unclean. And what that means is not that you're bad. What it means is you are ceremonially unfit to worship God. You are, you're, not, you're not terrible. You're not like, oh, man, you just walked in. You are ceremonially unfit, which means that you have to go through the process that Leviticus and that passage would prescribe for you to go from being unclean categorically to clean. Categorically. And again, this makes a little bit of sense because we see in this the echoes of the curse. See, whenever I touch a dead body, um, when I was in high school, I had a a dog, and he was just this mutt, crazy dog. Um, We called him Joe King. I knew it was because he was named after a guy that my dad worked with that he didn't like. And so Joe King, we named the dog Joe King. And Joe King, um, this mutt, would, he didn't do anything productive for our family except that whenever it would rain really, really hard in Southern California, all the sewers would flood and out would come any type of you know, natural animals in the area, which we didn't realize there were any natural animals in Southern California, but all of a sudden possums would come out. That's like the only wildlife I saw growing up. And so a possum you know, would, would come in the backyard and Joe would freak out, and just like bark, 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 bark. And then eventually he would find a way to core that thing and then get it by the neck and break its neck. And the rest of the night he would pick up that possum and throw him against the wall. He'd drop, pick him up, throw him against the wall. He'd drop just to make sure, you know, he wasn't playing possum. And so then in the morning, we'd open the door and right there on the doorstep, he's like sitting, <laughs> blood all over his face. <laughs> and there's a dead possum. I got to move the thing. Now in, in this period of time, as soon as I do that, I am now unclean. Because when I, as soon as I'm picking this up, what am I doing? I'm coming back to the reality that I am living after Adam and Eve After sin has come into the world, after the fall, the curse is here. And this is a reminder of this life that we live in now. Death is here. And so I have this reminder. Because of the curse, I'm unfit to come before God. So I need to go through the process of getting ceremonially clean. The next section is kind of confusing. Contact with reproductive fluid. This is both male reproductive fluid and female. It includes chapters 12 and 15 include the menstrual cycle of a female. It includes childbirth for the female. And so like all of that is included there. And it's kind of confusing. Why would that be something that would make a person unclean? But again, that's, the, that's what helps us understand that this being unclean doesn't mean you're bad. How do we know that? Because God called his people to be fruitful and multiply, which means to procreate, which includes contact with reproductive fluid. True. So there's not a way that you can like be fruitful and multiply without that happening. Am I right? This is, we're, we all went to health class, right? We know this, right? Okay, yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's a reality. That's there. And so the truth is, is that why is it that me being a husband to this, to this woman, and, and we, we, we are like, we, we, are, we, we had sex, that's a good thing. Why is it that now all of a sudden I ha- I'm now ceremonially unfit to come and worship God? Two things. First off, one, this, is, and this isn't explicit in the text, so we're just taking a guess here. But every other pagan culture, their worship services were not what you experience today so far. Every other culture around the Israel, Israelite people, the Hebrew people, their worship services were one part worship of the god or goddess you have, and a key part of that was an orgy. And so sexuality, these were highly sexualized encounters. And so if I'm going to a worship service, I'm going to, and knowing that there's going to be expectations upon my body and anyone else's body that I go with. There's going to be people there that will be used for that worship service. So what does God do? God says, I am not saying sex is bad. I've actually crafted this as a beautiful, wonderful, enjoyable thing. But I'm going to help you who are surrounded by people who fuse worship and sex and I'm going to distinguish them so much so that even you and your spouse doing what I've called you to do, that there's going to be a period of time where you are ceremonially ceremonially, unfit, unclean to come to worship so that I separate these out enough that when you come and worship, you know there is no expectations upon your body. There's no sexual uh, uh, call upon your body in this setting, that you're focused, that you are worshiping with all of your body, soul, and mind, and that this, is not something that for my people happens where these two things fuse in a worship service. The second part, again, is that it echoes the curse because one of the, again, anything that has to do with the curse in everyday life would be a reminder of our distance from God and a reminder, a conditioning reminder of the fact that that happened. When the curse happened, Adam was cursed and Eve was cursed. And one of the things that Eve was cursed with was actually having like pain in the, in the process of childbirth. And so anything that would relate to childbirth is an effect, or like just a reminder of the fact that there is a curse. And so whether it's the menstrual cycle or, or, or even childbirth, those, those very natural things were reminders of the fact we, need, we want you to come back to the reminder, to the truth of what the fact that that was something that was a curse that you had. Now, one of the other things that's really hard to understand in this passage is the fact that if a woman um, gave birth to a son, that child would have to be consecrated at the temple. It's like a dedication. Um, that child is going into temple work, or, or you're paying some type of a temple tax for your, ch- your firstborn son to come back, what have you. Um, but if, you had, if, you, if the wife gave birth to a daughter, the period of time that she had to go through ceremonial purity was doubled. It was like it was like it was more than that of a boy. Why? Just because you have a girl, Why? it seems like you're being penalized. I don't believe it's being penalized. And again, we don't have anything explicit in scripture, but from the context, we can kind of see that perhaps God is saying, we want this girl from a part of her story early on to know that her story goes all the way back to the curse. That, that before the curse, that we had a relationship with God that was good, but after the curse, Every aspect of our life is a reminder of the curse and the fact that we need to come back in relationship with God. And so this girl's story stems all the way back, even to that. We see that actually at the end of chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, uh, verses six and following. When the days of her, talking about the wife, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle that eventually became the temple, She's able, she's to bring the priest at the tent of meeting a year old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord and make atonement for her and she'll be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Okay, why is that important? How many of you love Christmas? Eh? I love Christmas. I remember my family always reading Luke 2 at Christmas time. You know what we never really got into? The context of Luke 2 at Christmas time. Because when you read Luke 2, you've just read the reflection of what I just read right there with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Take a look, Luke 2, 22 to 25. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, which we've just been reading about, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Did Jesus grow up rich? How do we know that, that at least in the early stages, he was not coming from a wealthy background? What were you supposed to bring? A lamb. Why would you not bring a lamb if you couldn't afford it? And if you couldn't afford a lamb, what would you bring? Two birds. We know Jesus' financial backdrop, at least Joseph and Mary's backdrop that he came from a poor background because they were following the Levitical law and all they could do was bring that. So as we're continuing through, and again, I love that. I love that when we, when we kind of look in Leviticus, we can see things like that surface out. We're seeing eating the clean, unclean and unclean animals, contact with dead bodies, contact with reproductive fluid, and then having a skin disease and touching mold. Again, these were echoes of the curse. If I'm looking down and if I've got some type of skin disease, I'm actually a walking billboard for the fact that the curse happened. And actually, it's one of those things where, again, people were being conditioned. This is in chapters 13 and 14. People are being conditioned with the fact that when I look out at a broken world, I can see cause and effect of what I do. If I punch someone in the face, there's going to be an effect of that back at me, right? So I know what sin happens. My sin has effects. I can see that. But there's a lot of stuff in this world that are just broken, and I don't get why they're broken. Leviticus 11 through 15 says you are living in a world that has the curse written all over it. We could either just be blase about that and just say, man, life just stinks. Or we could say, you know what? Everything that we see has an effect of the curse on it. And so what we're going to do is actually, God has provided a way for us to respond to that and be conditioned on a daily and weekly basis because all of these things happen to people, all of us. Everyone would go through this process and God's process was this. If you become unclean, there's something you can do. Sometimes it was just washing with water. Some, sometimes it was, it was bringing a sacrifice and, 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 a, and a priest would, would, be, would do some sprinkling um, for a sin offering, a sprinkling of blood on the throne. Sometimes um, it was something where you actually had to leave the camp. Like, you know, you got the whole camp right here. You had to go to the outskirts of the camp and be out there for what, however long it was, a day, up to two weeks. And when that time was done, when your skin like cleaned up or or whatever else happened, when that time of processing that uncleanliness is over, the priest, he would leave the camp and he would go and find you and he would pronounce you clean. He couldn't make you clean, but on behalf of God and God's grace, you are clean. Come back home. And you would have a chance to come back and have homecoming right back into the camp. Okay, so here's the question. Why in the world do we not flesh out, live out chapters 11 through 15? Like if it's so cool and so important for them, why, why, is it that we do, why, do, why is it that we ditch it? Why don't we obey the laws? And this is where sometimes people will say to you, okay, this is the problem I have with you Christians. You guys go through the Old Testament and you pick and choose. You just pick and choose what you want. You know, like there's some things here you're like, oh yes, we're gonna make sure that this happens forever. And then you flip on the other side of the page, you're like, oh no, that's just, uh, that was just for that time. You pick and choose, you're the biggest hypocrites to which we need to respond, if we didn't pick and choose, we would be denying who Jesus is and what he said he, who he said he was and what he said he accomplished. See, what Jesus did, actually, is he called us to look at the laws differently. When we take a look at this, we have to understand that the context confirms what we're called to copy. Whenever you're reading the Bible, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, you're, you need to recognize that the context is key. You can't just flip to the Bible and Okay, I'm going to live this out or flesh this out. You need to look at the context. What is God saying through the whole of Scripture, not just in part? So this is important. The context confirms what we're called to copy. This is so important. We're going to say this together, okay, on the count of three. This is going to be like school. One, two, three. The context confirms. Okay, so if the context does not say that you should copy it, should you copy it? No, some people try to do that, and, and they're, they're ignoring the context. If the context says to copy it, we absolutely should. And so when we look at those three divisions of law, um, we look at the judicial law and realize that that was a time-based thing. That was God saying, when I am king over this group who is operating on a theocratic level with me as, as God, this is the way things are. As soon as I am not your king, and you have absorbed yourself into some other kingdom, you are then called to respect and and support, not support what they're doing, but respect the fact that I have placed those leaders over you. They're gonna have different laws than I have. And so the judicial law, that's no longer applicable. The moral law, and we're gonna talk about this next week, still is. This is something where we see the, the things that God has called us to throughout the Old Testament that are in the moral law, that actually is still fleshed out. And we see that in the New Testament as it's reaffirmed over and over again. That, that, so we understand that there's a reason for that. The ceremonial law, however the process of going from unclean to clean is in fact obsolete why because of jesus because jesus has covered it because of jesus he has repealed and he has replaced the ceremonial law he actually stepped into it and 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 he actually he, because of what he did he has made us clean We are no longer in this consistent category between us and God of unclean. And so we have to go through this process. What he did on the cross took care of that process. And so now we have access to worship God. We can, as the author of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before the throne. And that is a huge, massive deal. So we have to pick and choose. We can say that actually this, this is expired and Scripture affirms that. And, and there's other things that we affirm because Scripture affirms that. And if we didn't, if we didn't do that, we would say that what Jesus came to do didn't actually happen. It didn't actually take place. And so the reason that we look at the ceremonial law as important I mean, even though we're not applying it, it's important for us to study and get our teeth into it and, and look at is because 2 Timothy 3.16 still, still says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. All scripture. Timothy, yeah, Paul isn't saying to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and useful, useful for training and correcting and raising someone up in righteousness, except for Leviticus, because man, that is a crazy book. He doesn't say that. He says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful That means that 11 through 15 can be useful in my walk, even though I am not someone who's consistently going from that unclean to clean process. And here's why. Because there's a life-changing effect whenever I do study it. Whenever I look at chapters 11 through 15 and I see what they went through and what they had to go through, I recognize this. There was a scholar who dedicated 10 years to study the book of Leviticus alone. 10 years, and that'll make you crazy or at least make you not invited to a lot of parties, but 10 years, okay? He's studying the book of Leviticus, and he said, this has changed my outlook. I have a different view on on, on holiness. I have a different view on the fear of God, and I have a different view on Jesus. This is what he said, and, and I affirm this. I believe this is our truth as well. When we actually are studying 11 through 15 in light of what has happened in our life, we recognize that we start to hunger for holiness more frequently, We start to recognize that God's holiness and my unholiness, my unrighteousness, means that there's going to be periods of my life where I don't get it. I mean, the fact that God tells people you can't eat these animals, but you can eat these animals. And then we get to the New Testament when he tells Peter, all these animals, you need to know that I made them and you are free to eat all of them. We, We recognize that God calls us to do things that sometimes we don't get. Sometimes he calls us to do something that he's not gonna call us to do in 12 years, but he calls us. And when he does that, we have to recognize that we have to follow his lead, especially when we don't understand. Not only when we understand. What this dismantles is my American independence. Man, because I love my independence. I don't like anyone telling me what to do. I didn't like it when I was growing up. In school, any rule that was given to me, I found loopholes wherever I could. I would have been a lawyer, but I'm not smart enough. But I wanted to find loopholes whenever I could because I don't like people telling me what, do any of you like to be told what to do? No. No. (laughs) I mean, even when I was having you guys repeat that thing, some, some, you know, I'm not gonna do it. (laughs) I don't like to be told what to do. We don't let, we have an American ideal that our independence says that no one should tell us what to do. And we we actually bring that in to our faith. The only reason I'm gonna do what someone tells me to do is if I agree with it, if I voted for it, if I'm on the same page with it. But outside of that, I am rebelling against it. And what God says is that works for everybody else but me. With me, you need to recognize that there are times where I'm going to call you to do something and I, you're gonna do it because I'm your master. Now I happen to love you. And you know that I'm faithful, but I'm your master. I am your God. That calls me to long and hunger for holiness more. I want my life to please God. I don't want it to be something that's just defined by my opinion or my my perspective. If that is what it is, I've got a a life set up for disappointment and, and absolute destruction. When I read through these passages, I see that I too have an opportunity to hunger for holiness more often. And I also have the opportunity to fear God more greatly. See, remember what we talked about last week with Nadab and Abihu, those two idiots who who decided that they were going to just waltz right into God's presence? Remember that? They they were going to, instead of uh, bringing the fire into the the sacrifice the way God had prescribed, they're just like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do. And they just went right on in. And how God like immediately went, and they're gone. That takes place in chapter 10. And then we have 11 through 15, the ceremonial laws. And then in 16, we have a reminder of the practice that they ignored. And so, the, so 11 through 15 is bookended by the fact that God is a holy God. And in his holiness, we don't simply just, in a cavalier attitude, just go before him. Because you know what? He's my best friend and it's all good. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. And, and I come into church and, and like, I just like worship him. And honestly, the first 15 minutes of, of worship, I'm just kind of evaluating the songs Have you ever done that? Like, I've done that. When I've been in worship, my first thought as I'm coming through these doors is not, I don't understand why you still accept me. After all that has happened in this past week, after everything that's been in my heart even today, how is it that you don't just kick me out? How is it that you don't just keep me at arm's distance and just let the people closer to you that are a little more holier than I am? How is it that you that you actually allow me to? I don't think of those things. I'm thinking, man, Carlos has got a good voice. Wish I could sing like that. Or I hate this song. This is a stupid, stupid song. He should choose the songs that I say he should choose. That sermon, that sermon was It was it was okay sermon. It, it, it kept me. Or that sermon was lame. I'm so hungry. I can't wait to go to lunch. When I read 11 through 15, I hope you get this too, we're coming before a God who we should absolutely come with reverence. When we start singing songs, turn the evalu- evaluation button off that we have whenever we drive our car and we're like flipping through the radio stations just to get the one that we like, and instead just open with that humility of going, God, I am broken. You should not Accept me, but you do. You have no reason, no reason to bring me in. I've done nothing to prove myself to you that you, should, that you should honor me with letting me worship you, and yet here I am. I should operate with a fear of God that's on a deeper, more profound level and soberly worship him with all of my heart because he actually has brought that access to me, which brings us to the final reality As 2017 Christians, we are able to love Jesus more deeply because we realize what he's done. We realize what Jesus has accomplished for us. See, because again, as a person was unclean, where did they have to go if they were unclean? For a period of time, where'd they have to go? Outside of the camp. You would have to go in your disgrace and your suffering outside of the camp, and you would have to be there until the prescribed time was up. And then... You are ceremonially fit to approach God and worship him. Only after a priest would come out and declare that you are then clean. You know what Jesus did for us? Jesus did not send us outside of the camp to go through the process of going from unclean to clean. Jesus, Jesus left the camp. And Jesus went outside of the camp. And he actually was the one who sat in the unclean position that you and I deserved when he died on the cross. And it wasn't a priest that came out and declared that he was clean. He, as a pure sacrifice who became sin for us in that process as we come out to him, declared that we are clean. And we see this in the book of Hebrews. This is, this is so cool. When you look at the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, you see the author saying this, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. How did he suffer outside the city gate? Where was he crucified? He was crucified just outside the walls of Jerusalem because Roman, Roman crucifixion was, was a show. They didn't want it to be right in the heart congestion of of a city where only a few people would see it. They wanted it to be on the highway so that everyone walking by had a chance to see someone who's being crucified and say, that's not the life I want to live. And so Jesus left the city. He left the camp. And he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross for you and for me. The author of Hebrews says, to make the people holy through his own blood. This was not a sacrifice that was going to be brought. It was going to be himself as the sacrifice. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Amen? So when we come into worship, we are coming as a people who are cognizant of the holiness of God and how we're not holy. And we're cognizant of how God shouldn't accept us, but we're cognizant of the fact that because of Jesus, we are and that should motivate something inside of us. A new awareness, a new reality that because he did that for me, that I have a different way of out looking at life, I have a different way of looking at him. It changes everything. Once a month as a church, we gather around the Lord's table to remind us of that. This month, I want, I want to encourage you to do this. In just a second, everyone here who's a believer, everyone here who's a follower of Jesus, you've, you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins. You've been bought by his blood. This table is open to you. You have tables in the back and in the front, but this this time, wash yourself free of any of the fact that this is common. This is a ritual that you're used to and bring yourself back to what it is that you're saying. Recognize that when you take the bread and the cup and you go back to your row, sit there for a moment. Recognize the cost. Recognize that this was an act of love from a loving God to you who made a way for you to go from the outside of the camp in because he took your place to do that. As you're doing that, spend some time in prayer and reflection. The band is going to do one song, and then we're going to come together, and we're going to take the bread and the cup together. Go ahead and do that now.